नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार्टबक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा टुडेस पॉडकास्ट इज टाइटल द मिथ ऑफ साउथ एशिया एंड टू टॉक अबाउट दिस मिथ आई हैव अखिल रमेश विद मी अखिल वेलकम थैंक यू सो मच फॉर हैविंग मी शो अखिल दिस इज योर फर्स्ट टाइम ऑन द पॉडकास्ट सो आई वुड रिक्वेस्ट यू लेट्स स्टार्ट बाय यू टेलिंग एवरीबॉडी अ लिटिल बिट अबाउट योरसेल्फ सो दैट दे नो अबाउट यू श्योर ऑफ कोर्स So I'm Akhil Ramesh I'm a resident fellow at Pacific Forum uh, a foreign policy research institute based out of uh, Hawaii USA so I primarily conduct research on US India bilateral relations um, in the Indo-Pacific and covering the historical relationship and more contemporary issues as well All right so so uh... when we talk about relationship what exactly uh, are the specific aspects you look at or it's it's a more general look at uh, these uh, these interactions no it runs the gamut it's basically any foreign policy analysis of a bilateral relationship whether it's defense trade security uh, and historical ties so it runs the gamut actually all right fair enough so uh, as as now even you know our podcast title is uh, the myth of south asia so so maybe we can start with this uh, this history itself history of this this idea of south asia itself now from what i understand uh, abhijita yermitra uh, also told me this that the term south asia was not a western term it was coined by the indian babudam <laughs> <laughs> so we do have this uh, you know the self loathing aspect of in us i guess it's uh uh the hangover from the colonization era so we would like to you know identify ourselves as the south asians and uh, we would like to make it easier for the other countries in in the region uh to humiliate us uh, i think it's part in our dna at times so i wonder if it's just uh, wired in us you know that we have to you know self loathe we have to have that issue with uh, you know our own uh, self respect uh yes uh this is a coinage from the region from us by us by indians uh but that has to change you know uh this is the, in 2022 uh, india cannot be the land of babus it has to change it has to have the foreign policy of the jay shankars and has to have the you know the vision of the modis which is more about uh, reevaluating re- your identity and rethinking what it means to be an indian what it means to be a hindu even uh so when you plan to do those you know uh, reflecting and uh, rethinking um you begin to question identities like south asia uh why why does it still exist uh, who is to gain and uh w- once you ask those questions then uh, you begin to wonder then what was a uh, coinage of probably an indian is now become uh one used as a trope uh one leveraged against us both by pakistan and by western nations to club us with pakistan uh they often draw the false equivalency of india and pakistan as two equal countries obviously it's not the case uh once a flourishing democracy the other has never had a single prime minister serve a full term mm-hmm. so I, i i can imagine some pakistani watching this podcast going hum atomy taakat hain because <laughs> that's all they can come up with uh but uh on a very serious note uh, do you think the right term if we were to describe this 
this region because uh, the terminology being used over here is to describe a region uh would the term then uh, the accurate term be the indian subcontinent ideally yes the indian subcontinent then you put india up front because if it's south asia then um, it is it falls into the whole academic circles in the western world which is basically run by a certain people who share certain political views people from certain parts of the subcontinent uh, so which is a problem if if indian subcontinent is the term then india takes the lead and uh, in north america i think us takes the lead even though canada and mexico are very much part of it but it's north america it's not uh, you know canada or or mexico so that's a good point actually uh, i never thought of it that way now next time i meet someone in america and canada i just came back i was there for four months you know i now i'm going to go back next time next year and i'm going to tell them we need to change the na- name of the continent because it's too america centric <laughs> and let's see how the americans yes. react to that <laughs> they won't be happy yeah, yeah they'll go back to the monroe doctrine days where uh, they want their hegemony in the western hemisphere Mhm I mean so it is fair enough they are a big country in the western hemisphere if they want to have control it makes sense but then you need to you know extend that courtesy to other big nations such as india mm but hasn't this been uh, a standard uh, american foreign policy doctrine where they like you when you're growing but you should not grow big enough for them to be uncomfortable Well that's always a challenge and I always tell my colleagues that uh, wait 20 more years and uh, what happened to Japan in the 80s what is happening to China now could happen to India in 20 years uh, the US could very well see uh, India as a potential threat or an enemy so I guess to prevent that we have the Kamala Harris's Rishi Sunak's and uh, all this uh, diaspora who are you know doing quite well uh, in the western world so that won't happen I think that is the mistake that China and Japan did. They never coveted the top spot in the western world. I think uh, if there are enough Indians in the in the diaspora who are in the echelons of power in the western world, I think uh, it won't be the same we won't be facing the same fate as the Chinese or Japanese have. How much of that do you think is because of language? Well, it's language and our smarts actually. Uh, it's a combination of both uh, and also actually one more thing it's our jugad uh it's because what chinese and japanese uh, they work hard uh but at the same time they don't uh, i guess move people i think we do it quite well that's why we are doing so well in politics uh, in the western world uh, i think after the irish i think it'll be the indians who are doing so well in politics same thing with the leadership roles we always want the top job uh whether it's in a cricket team the captaincy role or whether it's in a tech company we want to be the ceo not many aspire for that i think uh, we are very ambitious and uh, i think that's the big difference and but it's not just the language per se but language definitely makes a difference but we are also ceos in japan uh, we are also ceos in germany uh, so which language are you talking about then hmm I mean we are CEOs there but uh, if we look at the percentage distribution of CEOs in those countries vis-a-vis Indian CEOs in America I think we can clearly make a case of language being a factor because because we speak English we do have a disproportionately higher number of CEOs in English speaking countries vis-a-vis non-English speaking countries don't you think 
Yes, but do you think that's to do with the language or to do with their immigration policies? For example, Canada, the US, Australia have a much better, easier, relaxed immigration policy relative to, say, Japan or Korea or Germany. Germany is opening up these days, uh, but historically it has been since the 1960s, it has been the US and Canada. Um, and if English-speaking Anglo-Saxon countries opened up more, it's natural for us to move towards this region and you know, capitalize on it. That's that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But even if Germany opened up, I I definitely feel that the ease of transfer for an Indian because of them naturally speaking English back home in India would be a factor that would make things easier for Indians when when they move to let's say Germany vis-a-vis America. It's just a natural thing, right? When we, now for second generation kids, I 100% agree. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter, right? You're you're born in that country, so it doesn't matter because then that language is your first language. So whether it's German or whether it's Japanese, whether it's Mandarin or Cantonese, depending on uh, which part of China you live. But uh, I, I agree. But I was speaking more from a first generation Indian point of view, not yeah, from I a mean, second generation. Even in a first generation, the thing you have to wonder is. Um, if you, I guess, whether it's a central board education or even the state level education yes. uh, in India. I, I am a SSE student. Okay. So, yes, you, you learn multiple languages, right? So it's not yeah, just one I language. Did. It's not like Americans. It's not like uh, they learn. They might learn Spanish, but they won't be able to speak the language. But in India, everyone, if you travel in India, you'll have to speak probably two or three languages. Easily. Yeah. In Mumbai, four. Okay. Four. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so because me, Gujarati, Marathi, Hindi, English. See? Uh, and if you have friends from, say, the south or from the east, then another language. Uh, yes. So that's the thing. We naturally, I think, we are wired to learn multiple languages. I think it's a mm-hmm. gift. Yes, uh, if we can do that so easily, I think we can pick up languages, say, Spanish or French or German, easily. Uh, I think uh, other people will have a much harder time. If you're in China, if the only language you speak is Mandarin Chinese, and at 25 years old, you're going to move to Europe and pick up a language, that's going to take a while. Yeah. But if you're an Indian, yeah. if you're 16 years old, if you already speak four languages, and then your mom and dad force you to take uh, Mandarin classes, uh, by the time you're 20, you'll be fluent in Mandarin. Yeah. So, and and, and and even internally now in India, what I have experiences with the technology boom, Mm-hmm. And technology boom happening primarily in Bengaluru or in southern India in that sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that Pune is not a center or uh, uh, other places are not a center of technology, but let's get real. It's all southern India and we should just uh, call it what it is. With with northern Indians moving to southern India for job or western Indians or northeast Indians moving to southern India for jobs. Uh, and the good thing about India is that uh, unlike what happens on social media where northeast and southerners are fought, uh, fighting each other, uh, actually people do assimilate. I know my first cousins who were born and raised in Mumbai. They have gone and they've tried to you know, learn Kannada. Uh, they may not be fluent in it, but they have picked up a lot of the language they have understood it because they moved there and that's just a natural thing so i agree with you i can actually relate to it happening in india because people don't realize like even linguistically in that sense uh, southern languages although we have a lot of sanskritization in in uh, southern languages also yeah. but uh, let's get real a hindi speaking or a gujarati speaking person or vice versa a tamil tamil person moving into gujarat they're going to have a problem 
and and if they can get over that they can definitely get over the hump if they go to a non english speaking country so i agree with you as of now yes it's a factor of good immigration policies yeah, english as a natural language for indians yep. and which have led to it but i hope uh, you know other countries open up and i hope eventually india also opens up we should we should take the best talent of the rest of the world too in fact once i was uh, you know in this uh, in this gathering and somebody told us that india has a ceo problem i was like wait what we're exporting ceos to the rest of the world is like yeah they all go outside nobody stays here <laughs> we need some yeah. ceos in india yeah the brain drain conversation i think we would be having that soon maybe in 10 years from now um especially if uh, the us opens up uh, for all initiatives that is coming up with the supply chains and everything on the high tech and if they want these engineers from india uh, i think uh, it'll basically be sucking out all the engineers out of india the uh, ones who can uh, work on semiconductors and ones who can work on high tech and uh, for india semiconductor ambitions then where will it go mm-hmm. yeah so now we talk about uh... what you in your swaraj article with samir uh, called south asia analysis first of all for the benefit of somebody who does not know the word like this exists also and i always believe in explaining things before we start di- start discussing them assuming a baseline that everybody knows about it what is south asia analysis so south asia analysis is basically when uh, there's an idea of india that is uh, uh, portrayed uh, in popular media uh, it's usually negative um, it, it's negatively portraying india and its history its culture its people um, any action of the uh, political leaders in india in a negative light and it's often by uh, it's the partisan uh, folk in india or from pakistan and uh, this analysis is not objective uh, it's very biased and often has an agenda uh so this does not portray any bilateral relationship accurately and south asia often uh, you know limits the scope of the bilateral relationship take the case of us india thanks to south asian uh, analysts in washington dc the us india relationship never took off so finally uh we have india analysts uh, looking to change that dynamic and it's changing but uh, the south asia analysis is the cold war era analysis to view india as an enemy pakistan as an ally china as an ally and soviet union or russia as an enemy so during the cold war era it was you know china and pakistan were america's friends soviet union and india were enemies so i think that's still the cold war era thinking is still there in washington and that has to change i think south asia analysis is a relic of the past and this relic of the cold war era okay so if i was to and and correct me if i've misunderstood you so south asia anal- analysis is more the indira gandhi time and uh, quite clearly we were closer to russia then let's just face it but it's not like we were closer to russia the americans were also very opposed to us mm-hmm. it's both ways like uh, we did not do anything the americans sent a submarine if people want yeah. to be reminded of that yes. and then we had to reach out to russia for help and the russians had uh, uh, this is the bangladesh uh, the, during the bangladesh uh, liberation 1971. yeah 1971 uh, liberation uh, that at that time so it uh, and there were many more things uh, before that if you look at churchill's writings from uh, uh, his earlier times even when he was in the opposition and not the prime minister 
you know his, his stand on india and and my source over here is uh, a book by a pakistani scholar uh, oh. uh, who wrote this book on jinnah Mm-hmm. i think his name is istiak mehmood if i if i istiak ahmed or istiak mehmood I, i forgot his second name but my point is that uh, i'm very bad with names so his book on jinnah was fan- fantastic to uh, you know it's an amazing book everybody should read it and listen to my podcast with him too um in that book too when he shares the 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 sayings of uh, churchill on india Yeah. and the the view of churchill on india was not from uh, india pakistan view because at that time there was no india pakistan it was from a hindu muslim view and and let me say i don't know he did not have a very positive view of uh, what i can say hindus and not that he had a very positive view of muslims also so but he had a specially negative view of hindus churchill and and i see that um, <clears throat> carrying on and and now what you call india analysis i want to focus on that because this is something uh, to be very honest I, i this is not my field so i tend to ask these questions is because i genuinely don't know and yeah. and i assume that my viewers don't know so that's why i'm doing these things like so what would an india analysis do that is different from let's say a south asian analysis like okay i get the russia bit uh, i get okay. that but but like does the india analysis be- become more like an india first kind of a thing Akushal, let me take it off from where he left with regards to Churchill. You know, so Churchill's idea of India or the bigoted view of India, I think, stems from the fact that uh, most Anglo-Saxons or the Western world, by and large, uh, mostly Anglo-Saxons though, uh, did not want India to have an identity. Uh, that is why they hate uh, any Hindu nationalism or Hindutva uh, rising. Uh, actually it goes back to their idea of you know um, revival of paganism they view hinduism as paganism what they got rid of in europe uh, so any any form of uh, you know polytheism that can become a challenge to the abrahamic faiths is often a challenge to western civilization so if you look at the world now uh, if you exclude china and india you don't have many non abrahamic faith countries Uh, I mean, there are smaller ones. You have Japan, but uh, the big ones are China and India. Uh, China has gone communist, so they can't talk religion at all. And the only one left is India. So uh, I think uh, India is the last stand. That makes them nervous, and uh, that's why um, they always, you know, there's this term, you know, killing in silence. Uh, mm-hmm. They never talk about. Uh, Uh, the achievements of, uh, of the Hindu culture, the civilization, what what it was before Western colonization, they write history as if the British came in and then history started, or rather the Mughals came in and then they found India. Uh, what what was pre-Mughals? What were the achievements pre-Mughals, pre-British? They don't want to talk about that because if you talk about that, then India will have an identity. So you you can call that India first, or you can just call that. reading history right uh it depends on your uh, political views i guess mm-hmm. so i guess a necessary element of 
India analysis or Indian analysts would be, uh, do you know what uh, in anthropology they have the emic view and the etic view, right? One mm-hmm. is the view from the outside and one is the view from the inside. So do the Indian analysts have the insider's view and uh, would you say the South Asian ones will be the outsiders in that sense? Not necessarily. I was very specific about Anglo-Saxons because uh, it, was, it was not all Westerners who viewed India this way. Uh, even today, uh, when Putin talks about India, I don't know if he mistakenly refers to uh, India as Hindus, but uh, he always says Hindus uh, on a multi- in a platform, whether it's the UN or whether it's at the dialogue in Russia. So uh, you, you find a similar pattern with Germans, you find a pattern with the, the French. Even the Arabs, right? The Arabs always yes. call Hindi Al Hindi. So it, it's, it's a strange thing. It's only the I guess the uh, the Brits and the Americans and the, the Anglicized West. Yes. Yeah, Anglicized West. Yeah. So Anglicized the West world. and their elites in India. Well, they are just uh, I guess um, uh, photocopied coconuts. version. The coconuts. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So now, now that we have established the differentiation between the two, now let us, uh, so uh, am I wrong in my analysis over here? In, in a lot of what, uh, in your piece, uh, obviously your uh, piece in, uh, with Samir in, uh, in Swarajya was more America needing more Indian expertise and less of South Asia analysis. But uh, what do you make of this? You're there, you're working in, in that part of the world. This is what I realized this time. For full disclosure, I was in North America after eight and a half years. I had not been there. So it was kind of a shock for me how much, uh, not so much Canada, but America has changed. America has really flipped as a society. Uh, I, there was no wokeness, as they say, in America the last time I had gone before this trip. And suddenly all of this has come and America has literally changed as a society. Like they're not even the same people at times. You, 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 at least the university system is not the same there. But when it comes to the, this South Asia analysis, what I have seen is there is this wordplay over here. And, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong and if this is overblown or, or my observations are overblown. So I try to read some newspapers. Uh, uh, full disclosure, I never pay for it. I find my ways of reading them. And I have no shame in admitting that on my podcast. But uh, newspaper New York Times. Uh, so I was reading archives of New York Times. I was just going on pulling the coverage of New York Times, Washington Post. This is since Modi has come and before Modi has come. And there is a distinct change since Modi has come in the coverage of New York Times. Look, the viciousness barometer, if we had a knob, has just gone full. Like if there was an option beyond full, they would have used that too. It's not that they were nice before, but there there are certain ways in which they analyze India. Every time there is something good, in India's native culture, let's say yoga, right? We have yoga in our culture. We have sadhana, meditation, as they like to call it. Mm-hmm. We have many other ancient practices that we have, you know, independently developed yeah. in our nation. They either 
start trying to prove that it is not originally hindu and they have to show some buddhist root as if indians will have a problem in something being buddhist that is the funny bit like <laughs> they think they can diss indians by saying it something is buddhist the indians will be like why would we feel bad about it <laughs> it's good buddhism yeah. is indian and then there is a systematic event of trying to make buddhism not indian first of mm-hmm. all there there is the, these are my observations i could mm-hmm. and and why am i sharing them in detail with you is because i want to run them through with you uh sure then they will never call it hindu or they will call it buddhist or they will call it south asian they yeah. will never call it indian too it is not even called indian it is- yeah it's more south asian actually not even buddhist it's more uh, south asian uh, because uh, i think if something good it's south asian if it's anything bad it's uh, hindutva hindu hindu uh, indian uh, everything indian, bad yes. is indian or hindutva yeah i mean you see that even with restaurants in the us i don't know if you noticed uh because if they advertise the restaurant as pakistani restaurant they won't get customers so yeah, they'll say indian restaurant but whenever i speak to the owners they'll be from pakistan or from some other part of the subcontinent uh i mean i've always wanted to ask them then why do you you know name it indian restaurant they should probably call it south asia restaurant then Uh, you know to match you're just going to you've just given them an idea now next you'll see <laughs> south asian restaurants popping up all over united states of america and they're going to be like what the hell is this now <laughs> it won't uh, sell see that's the thing um uh, certain things sell if india's name is used um food for instance uh it's been a good food is associated with india so they can try pakistani food but pakistan doesn't stick uh, if they think of pakistan it's something else something not very appetizing um uh, so uh they don't want to use that name so that is the problem same thing with the uh, you know this vo culture in universities uh, i think the french were the first one to identify this they called it uh, from not from saying it right uh, islamo gauchma i mean islamo leftism meaning uh, the liberals will criticize uh conservatives they will criticize uh, anyone who's uh, you know anti free speech but radical islamists they have this soft spot uh so uh, the french called it but why uh, why do alliance. they have this soft spot why do they have this soft spot well uh they are the new oppressed uh i mean the past uh, 10 years there's terms like islamophobia and uh, you know they've become the new victims the new oppressed uh and uh, in the us in particular it's always the question of oppressor versus oppressed so which group you fall into they always split the world they have this dichotomy uh you got to be the oppressed or the oppressor so you got to choose one if hindus say that uh, we are not the oppressed you have to be the oppressor it's natural mm-hmm. um so it's interesting uh they do not and also they selectively read history uh to suit their narratives they never read the uh, history from their the perspective uh take the case of uh, the hindus for instance they would not read about uh, the bangladesh genocide but they would uh, read about what's happening uh, in some corner of india with one between two uh, i don't know farmers uh, dispute over cattle and they'll make it a you know nationwide genocide on the bangladesh so, genocide did you see the recent statement by the people of burni Yes that's what i'm talking about that's perfect uh, example of uh, leftists you know bernie's basically the islamo leftism that people are talking about he's not mm-hmm. 
center left, but he's far left. And uh, this is unholy alliance of uh, socialists, communists with the uh, radicals uh, of another religion is, is a problem. Uh, it is sad and unfortunate because uh, uh, if you're a communist, if you're a true communist, you have to, you know, equally bash all religions and all cultures. That's that's why the definition of communist, you don't believe uh, in, you know, superstitions nor in gods. But uh, yeah, this uh, sweet spot. And this also has to do with funding. Um, there's a lot more funding for uh, these efforts to cancel certain cultures and faiths, but not others. So you have yeah. certain Western interest groups from the Middle East who would pour money into this and uh, who would want to uh, talk about uh, India in a negative way. So how do you challenge that? You know, but this is nothing new. Uh, and I would like to give a shout out to a very good Twitter handle that consistently shares excerpts from old archives on Twitter. Uh, the handle is, I think, VG, VJG Tweets. It's, I think it's Vishal Ganeshan. Mm -hmm. uh, he also runs another handle called Hindu History. And uh, he shares excerpts from old American papers. So I'll just use this as an example because I always like to credit people uh, who do these things. This is a New York Herald edition reprinted in Wilmington Morningstar 1947, yeah. Indian Nightmare. And this is the associated comic. Oh, yes. New yeah. Year. This is 1947. Now, do you remember the 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 comic in the New York Times with the cow and everything outside? Yes. When we did the, I think it was the Mars mission after the Mars mission, if I remember correctly. Uh, Probably. Uh, I mean, this is not just cartoons. The bigger issue, I think, it was uh, if I have his name right, was Ashley Rinsberg. Uh, you know, yes, he's from Ashley. Israel. Yeah, uh, and he did an excellent ana analysis in his book. Uh, about uh, you know how New York Times has always been on the wrong side of history. Uh, so even during uh, the Holocaust, even during the World Wars, they were on the wrong side of history. Yeah. So how can but, you expect them to be right now? So this this is the New York Times cartoon after Mangalyan. Wow. wow. This is the New York Times. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I forgot about this one. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so the, the more, more things change, the more they remain the same, especially when it comes to the Hindu, right? I'm just actually disappointed that no one has taken up this subject in the mainstream. Maybe I should, uh, because this kind of translates into foreign policy analysis. When you have a dialogue on, say, space policy, no wonder people don't mention India. They would mention the Quad countries, uh, countries that have very little experience in space. They would mention Australia and Japan over India. Uh, you know, I've been part of conferences where they talked about space policy and uh, they mentioned the uh, U.S. It makes sense. They have the NASA. But uh, countries like Australia that have, very, compared to India, have very little experience in space exploration uh, are mentioned, but not India. I had to jump in and tell the speaker that you left out India. So Wow. You, you so, literally had to jump in. Yes, I had to say that how come you, you're talking about the quad, you mentioned three countries with the space programs and you left the most important one. Um, what was know. the response of the speaker? No, he did not think that uh, 
India had a sophisticated enough space program, and uh, he said, "Sure, uh, it has a space program." Um, and um, yeah, I did not want to engage in a debate with him um, because um, you know there are too many South Asia analysts, and I'll be the sole <laughs> India analyst uh, getting all flack. Uh, that is another thing. So uh, it is a problem, mm-hmm. not just with the space, but other fields too. When we talk about semiconductors, uh, people still you know make such cartoons or memes or joke about it uh, there'll be someone if I wrote an article that India is getting an, uh, on the right track with regards to uh, semiconductors or infrastructure there'll be someone from China or even from the Western world who would comment that uh, have you done construct constructing your toilets um, so that'll be the comment. Uh, I could engage. That, that's, in- a, that's, a, that's a silly retort because what? then I tell them, why don't you fix the homelessness in San Francisco? Exactly. So I don't want to get into a, a piss fight with them. I mean, with the Chinese, I could say something worse. Uh, but what's the point? Um, it'll end up in a silly argument uh, online and social media. But uh, I think the point is the narrative has to change. And I think it was, uh, if I'm not wrong, Brahma Chalani. Uh, he wrote this article uh, about the Orientalism of the Western media, media companies and uh, the media groups, uh, whether it's the even the right-wing Murdochs or whether it's the left-wing the New York Times. Uh, I think the issue has always been that they have this Orientalist view towards India, and, uh, mm-hmm. if, and they set the narrative, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. All the media space is taken by you know, Western media houses. There's very little for the other. And the other so-called other is basically Al Jazeera, uh, a state-owned enterprise, or Xinhua in China. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those are not exactly alternatives. Uh, you need an alternative that is, I guess, part of a democracy and that could challenge the existing narrative, uh, not uh, repeat uh, state um, propaganda. Mm. So that's what's required. I think uh, if you want to know what the doctor is ordering. It's basically change in the media narratives. If that media narrative changes, the idea of India would change because there's still the idea that India is the land of cows and snakes and, uh, you know, homeless people. That needs to change. Mm. But but what is fascinating is that it, it's, it's a problem of citation loops. If mm-hmm. you go and approach the standard caricatured American which is a white progressive in these South Asia. Uh, I mean, if you're in academia, it's a white progressive woman. I'm being, uh, I mean, I don't care. You're getting into trouble. (laughs) No, I don't care. Seriously. These are my words. These are not Akhil's words for the record. And, uh, you know, you, you ask them, okay, what is your source? 9.9 9.9 out of 10 times the source is an indian the source is an indian who's writing um, for some american british publication like i don't want to linger on this but i just finished a podcast with uh, charlotte littlewood uh, from the mm-hmm. kenny jackson society yeah familiar so she covered, she wrote a report on the Hindu-Muslim tension in Leicester. And that report is worth reading because the kind of garbage that was published as analysis and reportage in the British press, whether it's a Guardian, whether it's a BBC, mm-hmm. 
never has there been an active job for a police in in any part of england to keep busting fake news and many times the fake news is generated by the media itself they were they they rely on majid freeman who's an active isil sympathizer active not mm-hmm. passive active they rely on mohammad hijab and and they just publish nonsense and yeah. before that a few days ago by the way that opinion piece had to be taken down oh. just for the record that piece had to be taken down uh that this was a piece written by uh someone in uh, in 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 i think it was the independent or something uh sunny hundel was uh, oh wow uh, okay you don't have to say more okay i get the picture yeah. sunny hundel was basically uh, the editor and uh, i'll share the image too i'll share the image because that that the damn thing was taken down and uh, you know it, it is disgusting uh, why i'm using these examples is that we need to understand that many times that when they say these things and all of this is discussed uh, you know you can't you can't blame anybody else but the person doing this is an indian i mean what are we talking about like it's I mean, not like somebody somebody else did it like I mean, sunny sunny it, hundel's case it was sunny hundel who approved of an article which clearly said okay you guys do this you guys do that uh, we south asia indians have a racism problem uh, in england i mean think about it this way uh british could not could not have colonized us without the support of indians or rather they couldn't have maintained the empire without the support of indians they maintained it because they had many coolies they had many sepoys they had many who could be you know turned against their own people i think there's a similar problem here uh the modern day world we have uh uh people who would you know serve the empire over their own people um so the citation loop is actually the problem with south asia analysis it's usually you know each other scratching their backs and citing each other check wow. the word over here british indians now they're not south asians mm yeah no i know what you're talking about is always yeah when it's racism yes it's british indians yes so that's what i'm trying to say and I mean, this is do you your, recall the whole the south asia analysis the one in texas uh the incident in texas uh oh yeah uh, the 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 hispanic christian yes. woman yeah. uh throwing uh, slurs at a bunch mm-hmm. of bengali uh, uh indian women and then yeah. uh, if i remember correctly the son is like i don't need you hindutva extremist standing up for me or something of that sort had happened right and yeah. that then then that 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 son had to delete the tweet later on because the other women were mm-hmm. uh, were like no we appreciate all the help coming to us right it was only one woman's son who said that yeah i mean he even uh, if i'm not wrong uh, there was this tweet by the you know the indian muslim council here uh, who said that south asians faces have this experience they made it again a south asian thing so when you're victims you become south asians but uh, if it's in a context of a perpetrator you're indian uh like as like we you know going back to the argument about if it's bad it's always indian if it is good it's south asian meaning if you want the sympathy if you want the support of people 
uh, it becomes South Asian. If you want to target hate, Indian. The, yeah. But even but look, two of your essays, which you co-wrote with Samir, had a very specific America focus, and 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 I'll tell you why America matters in this is because most of this garbage, and I use the word garbage with full responsibility and seriousness, is emanating from American academia and American university, where the peak garbage generator <laughs> is sitting in the University of Rutgers, a woman named Audrey Trushke. Mm-hmm. Who, who who sees all sorts of problems in Hindu scriptures. Look, I, I'm not going to hide it. I criticize Hinduism myself. But when a person like me starts cringing with an Audrey, you should know that, you know, shit has hit the roof. Like, I criticize Hinduism. And when I'm like, kya bol rahi hai? This, this, this woman is crazy. People should sit and actually wonder. And this woman is in charge. There are more than 7,000 Hindu students, if I'm correct, in Rutgers. Mm. How does, I mean, America is the epicenter of generating rubbish when it comes to this. Yeah, maybe at one point of time, England was the rubbish generator in their aplomb. Mm -hmm. And when what they said mattered. Let's be honest, what England says doesn't matter anymore. I mean, they're sad about the fact that India took over their economy. They should be happy. They beat us in the World Cup semi-final and they beat us handsomely. Congratulations to them. They can feel good about it. But the point is, what America does matters a lot. And now I want to focus very specifically on Indo-American relations from a South Asia analysis perspective and from an India analysis perspective. Now, you, as you said, you are in Hawaii. Uh, uh, I know Hawaii is uh, officially part of America, but I still don't know why. But because it's <laughs> such a world, it's a world of its own, man. You know, you live there. It's a world of its own. Sure. So, 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 tell me how how because these stereotypes harm. Like, I, I'm very serious when I share this uh, story. When I did my talk in Toronto, which was my second talk in my North American visit, first talk was in Ottawa, but in the second talk there was a small Hindu baby. Mm-hmm. six or eight i don't remember the age exactly and that girl came to me and she said uncle she, she when her father was not there she made sure her father was not there she comes to me this is after the talk is done and she says can i talk to you i was like sure and she said i'm scared to be a hindu that girl told me i'm scared to be a hindu wow that shook me when a young child is scared to be a hindu that's not a good sign why is she scared to be a hindu And she was saying, you know, these people make fun of my faith. Now, how how does American policymaking or how do American think tanks? I used Audrey as as an example purposely. She's reducing the essence of Hinduism to everything bad about Hinduism. I'm not saying Hinduism is perfect. What if this was done when we reduce the essence of uh, Christianity Islam, Judaism, or every religion for that matter, to all the worst aspects of that. How would those people feel? And how would America as a society function? And how does America think that, look, uh, India is going to rise economically, militarily, in, in every material parameter, no matter what America wants or tries to do. In such a situation, how does America think all this nonsense helps them? I mean, it's not just, I wouldn't say it's America doing it. It's uh, certain universities, certain professors who are doing it. Uh, I mean, there are Americans who see through this uh, 
if I don't know if I can use the language on your podcast, bullshit. Uh, no, no, please, you can. Uh, so yeah, see through this bullshit. Uh, there are people, there are professors in academia who see through it. There are people in think tanks who see through it. In Washington, there are enough think tanks to see through it. But uh, I mean, she's an exception. Uh, I think uh, being critical of uh, religion is one, but the targeting just one uh, faith, I think uh, that is different. Uh, that just shows one's bigotry, I suppose. Because uh, you can be an atheist, you can be you know, critical of all religions, equal opportunity criticizer, you know, uh, whether it's Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, tra trash talk, everything. Be like a stand-up comedian, you know, make fun of everything. Uh, if you just make fun of one faith, then uh, it, it's more of a bias issue. Uh, it's it's uh, clearly a bias. And uh, what I would say with Rutgers is that... Um, it's unfortunate that uh, we don't weaponize our students. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying this in the wrong way, but uh, let me put, give you a context. Say China, use, using its market, uh, often weaponizes uh, companies. In a company where it's a Marriott, where it's a Tesla, uh, it often can you know, leverage its market access to get its way with them. Uh, I think similarly, India's biggest exports to the Anglo-Saxon world, I think like we... Is, you know, started this conversation on, you know, is our English-speaking students in the U.S., Canada, Australia. And uh, we give them a lot of money through the students. We give them talent. So if you have, say, 7,000 Indian students at Rutgers, what if you pull out? What if you say that uh, we won't send you students if you don't course correct? The thing is, we don't weaponize like that. Uh, we are not China in that sense. We need to be more assertive, and uh, we need to put our foot down. Mm, but when when we say we need to put our foot down, you know, this is the section where I piss uh, our people off. Um, I mean, I have to. It's just uh, it's, it's a compulsive disorder I have. <laughs> so uh, the some ends uh, or uh, some sections of our side. When I say our side is the India side, mm -hmm. we are also known to come up with the. I don't know what to call it, like gobbledygook uh, of the highest order to counter gobbledygook of that side. Like, and the problem is that our gobbledygook gets dismissed then. And then even the good, good faith operators, where I include you and many others, who try to correct the narrative by showing proper evidence, mm -hmm. good scholarship, rationality, first principles, get dismissed. So what do we do about bad faith operators in our own side who just come up with rubbish? Uh, I don't know. I think uh, the only thing I think of is um, the, I don't know if it was part of the manifesto, but it was uh, a party's name, Mukt Bharat. So basically you need something like a woke Mukt Bharat kind of thing. Uh, you need to, uh, you know, win people over uh, you need to talk about uh, uh, the ideas being stupid uh, how rubbish they are uh, and uh, once that happens once you have the people support uh, those ideas won't sell i mean think about it end of the day whether it's a newspaper a media company if you don't have viewers uh, if you don't if people are not watching you uh, you're gonna lose business it was like cnn after trump uh, they crashed basically 
they made their money bashing him. So once Trump was out of office, they didn't know who to bash. Um, so similarly, if you get, get the oxygen out of them, I think uh, you basically win. Exactly. All right. Now, I still believe America is the epicenter and America matters a lot. So if we were to, let's say if the India analyst side was to succeed, which is what I want to happen, and and the India analyst side uh, should succeed on the basis of truth, not on falsehoods, which is why I said what I said before this. Um, what are, and this could be our last segment where we focus on this, because I always believe in providing solutions, not just uh, sure you know, incessant whining, which uh, I think social media has become. Social media is a cesspool of incessant whining. What are tangible solutions where if we look, America is going to be the epicenter of it, whether people like it or not, they just have to live with the reality that America is the alpha there, whether they like it or not. I mean, it is what it is. You can, you can accept it, deny it, whatever. It doesn't change the reality. How do we, and, and, it's like the one thing in your essays where it clearly shows that look, American and Indian relations have improved in many areas, but the one area where American and Indian, like I, I'll give you an example, what Canada is doing right now with the entire Khalistan thing, mm -hmm. you know, allowing these referendums on their soil, it is genuinely ruining Indo-Canadian relations. Mm -hmm. It. I don't know what is wrong with the Canadian government right now. The Canadian government, which is a composition of the Liberals and the NDP right now, I think they have lost their collective mind and they think they don't need India as a partner for the future. Now, that's a bad thing, not only for the average Indian, it's a bad thing for the average Canadian because India is going to become an economic powerhouse in two decades. What the hell is Canada going to do? Similarly, I don't think things are that bad with America. To be very honest, I think American policymakers are far more mature and far more practical than the Canadian policymakers right now. So what are the solutions where we can tackle these issues? And, and I like America, full disclosure. <laughs> I like America. I like Canada too. In fact, I like Canada more than I like America. But the point is, yeah. how do we make sure that these relations are improved and what were the solutions that you would offer to improve this, this entire, if I was to say shit show. Wow. Um, I wish I had the silver bullet, but there are a couple of things that could be, uh, you know, done. Um, I mean, for starters, uh, weaponizing aside, uh, you can actually, you know, there are so many big industrialist Indian leaders who donate who, to big universities in the U.S. And the same departments, those, those same South Asia departments churn out pieces criticizing them, criticizing capitalism, criticizing businesses. So first, don't throw money at things that are going to come back to, you know, hit you in the face. That should be the first. Uh, second is... Uh, you need to work on things that are mutually beneficial, uh, whether it's on China, whether it is on trade and security. And uh, India needs to open up more, frankly. It needs to open up to trade. It needs to open up to open ties with the US. Think about India-Israel relations. All this while was an affair. Finally, Modi, Bibi, Netanyahu opened up. Why, why was it an affair? There was 
Yeah, it never made sense, the, uh, the relationship with Palestine. No sense. Similarly, it needs to be based on rationality. What do we gain, both for the Americans and for Indians? It should not be based on values. It should be based on interests. Because values are very different, keeps changing. And uh, often, uh, like uh, Jay Shankar, the external affairs minister, put it, um, and it's not democracy, autocracy, summit, but hypocrisy. Uh, so when it comes to values, it's always hypocrisy. Uh, on Russia, you'd say something. On Iraq, you would say something else. Uh, so people's policy changes. Uh, so it should be strategic interests that should lead the relationship. And finally, um, the Volk uh, community will be there around the globe. Uh, you can't get rid of them. You can probably get the oxygen out of those uh, you know, those balloons, the air out of those balloons once you strap the funding. Uh, what In India's case, what's unique is that uh, capitalists fund socialist initiatives. I never got that. Why would a billionaire fund a paper that openly is for communism and socialism? It's hush money. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So you remember in India in the 90s, 80s, 70s, how the local gunda used to come to the factory and be like, hire my person or dot, 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 dot. And you'd be like, I can't hire him. He's really pathetic or her. And uh, they'd be like, then give me some monthly money because that gunda had a nuisance value. Diversity, equity, inclusion <laughs> is the gunda that has nuisance value. Listen, you don't want to be called a casteist if you're a Hindu. You don't want to be call, called a racist if you're a white person. Let's just face it. Mm -hmm. These two things have a huge stigma attached to it because you know why? Because both the societies have genuinely changed. In the case of a Hindu, they've genuinely gotten over their casteism. In the case of the white person, they genuinely got over their racism. Are there casteists and racists? Yes. But in both cases, they got over it, right? They, they made a conscious effort to get over it. So what happens is when, when you use the stick to beat them up, mm -hmm. so think like the diversity, equity, inclusion folks to be the nuisance value generators. They have nuisance value. And why would a capitalist pay them? It's very simple. Shut up. Now don't bug me. I mean, yes, I guess your argument is more about control resistance, but... Uh... The controlled, what, uh, you know, there was what Chomsky was, Noam Chomsky was talking about. But I think in India's case, much more. Uh, it's actually costing us the relationship. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, you know, you're saying uh, early on that, uh, you know, there's Indians who are worse than, you know, foreigners trashing India. And it's precisely mm -hmm. true with uh, the academia in the US. Uh, if you look at South Asia departments, it's usually, you know, people of Indian origin who are worse than people who are Americans or abroad. Because uh, they have this, some kind of vendetta against India. I don't know yes. what. I don't, I don't know who called them ugly or what uh, <laughs> and disappointed <laughs> them. But uh, they're very unhappy about uh, India. Um, I get it if they were like kicked out or if, if, so, if something like that. But they often are like children of diplomats or of businessmen, and uh, they come from privilege in India, and they and they sit in echelons of power in the U.S. and they talk about Brahminical patriarchy. And the biggest <laughs> thing is, a lot of them are Brahmins. Brahmins. The ones, yes. Um, 
I think we know, I think it's the Brahminical leftism, I, I should say, because uh, you are criticizing the people you're part of. Uh, I mean, there was this one person who wanted Dravidistan uh, in the South, you know, the Dravidian movement. The irony is that no Dravidian, uh, if there was one, would accept him uh, you know, as part of it. They don't accept uh, Brahmins who are considered Aryans. That was the funniest part. Uh, you know, he wants a country, but he won't be accepted in it. Yeah, it's it's see, like I said, first principles are a rare thing, and logic is always missing. But look, look at the irony of this, and you know, kudos to Rajiv Malhotra for mentioning a lot of this in his new book, Snakes in the Ganga. I really appreciate that book. You know, he talks about how, you know. Mahindra is funding a chair in Harvard and that's run by Homi Baba. And let me tell you, as a guy who reads all this material himself, I mean, Homi Baba is one of the most verbose writers who comes up with absolute booga booga. Like you can't understand head or tail of it because it's not meant to be. And and all these people are funded by our billionaires. Mittal Foundation funds all sorts of weird, mm -hmm. absurd things. Murtis fund mm -hmm. uh, the Murti Library. And, and it's all these absurdities that are funded. And because this takes me to the larger issue, which I had raised in my podcast with Rajiv Malhotra, I say, this is another thing that I've noticed. When you meet a George Soros, mm -hmm. when, you, when you see uh, Bill Gates... When you see other Western multimillionaires or billionaires, they have a grand vision. They have a larger vision, a narrative. Yeah. Not only for their own society, but for the globe. Yeah, like, yeah. A proper global vision. Very In true. the case of Indian multimillionaires and billionaires, unfortunately or fortunately, I have met a few in my lifetime. They have no vision. Mm -hmm. Their only vision is immediate approval. At best, the best of the Indian billionaire will have a vision for their company in India or their business across the globe. That's all. Yeah. They don't have a humanitarian vision. They don't have a grand narrative with which they want to shape the world. And at best, they just want approval from some person over there. And they just choose these people in that process because they think these people will get their work done in those countries because they believe these people are powerful in those countries. So it's it's all a racket. And it's very unfortunate. It's very frustrating to me personally. And the only I agree with you. The only solution to this is good scholarship from, our, from the side of uh, India analysts. And when I say India analyst, it has nothing to do with your skin color. And, and I'm sure you mean the same. It has nothing yep. to do with your uh, nationality either. Now, yep. I'll tell you who is an India analyst in my view. Salvatore Babonis is an India analyst. He is an honest analyst who just did analysis. All Salvatore had to do was read. And he was like, what the hell are these people doing? <laughs> it was so yeah. easy. Or what yeah. Charlotte Little would do did in her report for the Henry Jackson Society. That is India analysis. Okay. She didn't. She criticized uh, or she was open to criticism to Hindutva too. And I could care less about it. But the point is, at least this was an honest report of how things happened. So my point is that when we talk about India analysis, we talk about an honest analysis. Yeah, That's all we expect. And even expecting that has become so sad. But 
you know we're almost touching one hour so before uh, before i end today's podcast up uh, you know i i always you know leave the viewers with something positive <laughs> so so say something positive <laughs> okay uh we will be having in the analysis we are having it uh and soon uh, you know there won't be much of south asia analysis uh, because uh, people are waking up and we have the kushals of this world who will air the india perspective and uh, so yeah i'm optimistic fair enough you know i hope uh, people realize the value of good academic scholarship uh, you know a lot of times my own viewers tell me oh who reads these verbose things i was like you may not read these verbose things but the people who make policies they read these verbose things and and this is where your life is affected the most the pareto principle is real 20% of the people decide the fate of 80% of the people 80% don't read they vote yeah i think it's even less than 20% i know but yeah the pareto principle usually is yeah, that yeah. it, it 2080 yeah. yeah. yeah i know in the case of india it must be like not even 5% <laughs> 5% yeah. that is the so problem very, yeah and and it, we need to realize that indian scholarship is very 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 small and there is tons of gatekeeping when it comes to indian scholarship scholarship on india when i say indian scholarship yeah uh, scholarship on india yes definitely that's yeah. yes too many gatekeepers so, the south asian yeah. analysts are the gatekeepers yeah and we need we can't enter those gates so we need to build our new buildings is the only solution out of this but akhil it was a pleasure talking to you i you uh, i hope uh, we could cover everything and um, i i hope this is not the last time we're going to speak uh, and we have many more podcasts in the future too and next time when in america uh, hopefully you know we'll catch up for some lunch or dinner well, sure. whatever whatever the situation and time demands so thanks for coming on the podcast Of course thank you so much for having me it's been a total pleasure to chat about this timely topic All right guys we lent today's podcast so if you want to follow Akhil I will leave Akhil's Twitter handle in the description of the podcast I'll also leave a link to a couple of articles Akhil uh, wrote on uh, the South Asia analysis with Samir Kalra uh, I think one is on first post and one is on Swarajya uh, outside of that please subscribe to the Charvak podcast YouTube channel like this video leave your comments over there if you like what I'm doing over here at the Charvak podcast become a member on YouTube or a subscriber on Patreon on you can also buy the charvak podcast merch uh, on uh, my own website kushalmehra.com or on kadak merch or you can send your donations through upi i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye